Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the Fail to Fail podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. What is going on, everybody? It has been a long time since we've gotten around to another episode of the Fail to Fail podcast, the Digital 410 Network's limited series motivational podcast. But we have a guest for you tonight. Like you guys know, we usually save the the nice guest, the the deep guest, the unique guest for this podcast, and we've done that once again. If you're a TikToker like myself, you may follow him at Punks Not Dad. Joining us from the Great White North, Mr. Jarrett Fleming. Jarrett, how are you doing today, sir? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you uh, you coming in and hanging out with us. Before we get to the the jux of the position, why I'm, I'm having you on, let's get a little bit of background for everybody. Um. Give me a little background. Where'd you grow up? What era did you grow up in? Uh, what was your childhood like? Uh, for sure. I was, uh, I'm 42 now. I was born in 1980. Just missed the 70s. Glory days of punk rock in mm-hmm. 1977. But uh, I was born into a conservative hockey family in Winnipeg, Manitoba. My father was uh, a coach of the local university hockey team there. And he went on to... Uh, serve as coach and uh, several positions for Hockey Canada, as well as uh, several teams across the NHL, uh, the KHL in Russia, and the elite Syrian in uh, Sweden as well. So, you know, life of a, of a hockey coach, when I, when I say I, I lived in several places, people typically ask me if I was an army brat. I was going to say, uh, it's, very, it's very reminiscent to the lifestyle and the childhood of an army brat for sure. That's right. So uh, we actually, our first big move out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, in the Canadian prairies was uh, to a small town in the northern Italian mountains of Murano, Italy in 1986. Uh, Dad took a job there. And uh, I think that that's what really started, uh, you know, he was known in, within hockey as the Indiana Jones of hockey because he was really uh, everywhere in, in any given year. Um, so, uh, you know, that was, uh, we were out there before the fall of the Berlin wall. I was in, uh, grade one out there. Wow. We're so far North. I was actually in German school, um, picked up a little bit of German. I'm uh, still able to order a bratwurst if I'm over there. I, I wish I would have paid more attention in my German class in high school because where I live in Cape Coral, Florida, we are real big. Um, we are a big tourist destination for, uh, Germans and, when I had my IT firm, I had four or five German clients. Luckily, I have Windows memorized well enough that I could sort through it, even though it's all in German. But, you know, I can speak very little German, but I wish I would have paid a hell of a lot more attention in high school because that's the one language class I did take, but I never finished. And there's a huge population of German uh, tourists down here. Oh, yeah. Well, my, my uh, oldest sister, Angie, actually moved to uh, East Germany in, in the early 90s, uh, got married and uh, my my oldest nieces and nephews, uh, uh, all fluent in English, German, French, and uh, they spent some some time in Dubai as well. So they, they have a little bit of Arabic. Um, so we're definitely a, a well-traveled family. Well, I don't uh, want to get full-blown into a history podcast because that's what what's the scuttlebutt's for. But just briefly, explain the importance and the magnitude of living where you lived when the Berlin Wall was coming down or had just come down. I mean, that... That was world-changing, literally. I mean, more than just the David Hasselhoff video that we all love to this day. I mean, that was a big deal. Yeah, you know, as a, as a kid, um, you know, from from Winnipeg, which is a pretty, you know, we had a, 
we had an NHL team at the time. Um, they've since come back, uh, the Winnipeg Jets. But, um, you know, I was easily the, the most world-traveled in my grade two class, I think, Absolutely. at the time. And um, it really helped me along the way as far as um, growing myself into who I am and, and having a, a pretty broad perspective of life outside of uh, a Canadian prairie town. Um, you know, it was... It was obviously intimidating. Um, the world was a lot bigger then than, sure. than it is now. So, um, you know, my teachers didn't speak a lick of English. And uh, we, uh, we just threw ourselves into these adventures. And, um, you know, I tell you what, though, it was uh, something I'd, I'd never trade for the world. And, and obviously, I was uh, super fortunate to have these uh, opportunities, um, especially to see so much of the world before I had to grow up and pay for it all. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, but it, yeah, you know, yeah, it was, uh, you know, something that, you know, was, uh, was very, very fortunate, you know, being at such a young age, I didn't understand the fact that it was a unique opportunity at the time. Um, but in hindsight, you know, it was uh, something that definitely shaped me, you know, and for the people, people listening might think, well, God, that sucks. Not having any grounding or continuity, you know, being at the same high school, same middle school, but that's such a short period but an important period in your life but not only that i think looking back now you definitely appreciate the fact that as you were just saying moving to all these places living amongst all these different cultures and all these physical environments it it's so much it's so well-rounding for one's personality i mean i by no means lived on the scale which you did but i grew up born in kentucky grew up in ohio spent four years in california and i've been in florida for 20 years now but just living in those four different states and those four different areas i have and during those moves i'm much like you a lot of it was driving a lot of it was flying but driving through the country i tell people all the time there is plenty of middle of nowhere still left out there i mean it's out there but sometimes i I, and my brother's the same way, Ohio, Montana, where he lived in Big Sky for eight years, snowboarding. Now he lives out in Vegas. And then I, I think of some of our friends back home who never left the town we grew up in. It's like, how much are they missing? And not only that, but just their opinions, the way they see things. When you move and you live amongst different people, because every state, every country, every location has a different populace, and that populace has a different way of thinking. And thus, by you living in those different areas, it makes you a more rounded person opposed to living in one area your entire life and having the same views. Yeah, you know, um, and that's the beautiful thing about, uh, you know, the, the the 50 states spread out across America down there is, um, boy, you guys have a, a lot of culture under one flag. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're a large country geographically up here, but you know, I think maybe there's 35 million people. When I was growing up, there was 25, 26 million people. So, and all, most of us are all tucked in very close to the U S border. Um, and, and, you know, for the most part spread out between Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver. Um, there was relatively a humble population of us, uh, throughout the prairies, but, you know, I've really, um, I, I spent, um, most of the last 10 years, my wife's son and I moved, um, to, to Regina, Saskatchewan, uh, three years ago now, just under three years ago. And, um, we spent majority of the last 10 years in, uh, Victoria, um, on Vancouver Island, just, uh, off the coast of, uh, Vancouver, BC. And, uh, you know, that's, it's really heaven on earth as yeah. far as Canada goes. Um, 
it really is our Florida um, where it has the best climate year round for our country and um, you know, mountains and ocean and whales. And um, because of that fact, you really, you know, I met a lot of the population out there that, that grew up there and, and never saw, um, you know, never saw much of Canada yeah. um, really saw no reason to leave because of such a natural beauty out there. And um, it really, you know, I, I talk about my international uh, experiences, but, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to live in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, NBC, um, throughout my childhood and adulthood. Um, and, you know, coming back to the prairies after being gone for, uh, oh, shoot, 30 years, um, I'm just, you know, I, I, I fell in love with it again. And it seems to be where my heart is right now. Um, there's something to be said about um, big sky country and, yeah. um, you know, the, almost the, the freedom, you know, on, on Vancouver Island, if somebody gets a flat tire, the whole Island is shut down for, uh, hours, if not days. And, um, there's only one road up and one road down. Uh, you know, the, the same scenario happens out here and you make a left turn onto a gravel road and carry on with your life. Um, and, and there's just something to be said about that, but, the people out here are phenomenal and it's uh, part of the reason why we moved back here was to, you know, have this, uh, you know, my, my son's grandparents influence on him and, yeah. um, you know, really the, the, the small town local experience that, that exists out here to be, um, you know, part of his influence growing up as well. I was just thinking you're talking about, you know, there, somebody car breaks down at, brings the traffic to a standstill. Well, we have the same problem down here, but it's not because of narrow thoroughfares. It's because people are lazy. I was thinking, I was born in 78. Uh, you were born in 80. You know as well as I did, cars were garbage in the 80s up until the mid-90s unless you had money. And so anybody who had a car, whether it was a 98 Ford Escort, a Chevette, a early model Honda, those things broke down. You never knew if you're going to get to work on time, if fuel pump's going to go out, your alternator's going to fail. We all spent a lot of time jumping our cars in first gear and pushing them off the road, right? Very much so. People down here run out of gas or something. They could be driving a Kia Rio, and they will not get out and push that damn thing. They will just let it sit in the traffic. One day there was a guy who had a little MG Boxer, two-seater convertible, sitting right by a church parking lot entrance, and then we have what we call the Cape Coral Voice. They're retirees who volunteer to be um, kind of like assistants to the police, so whenever there's an accident, they do traffic control. Whenever there's DUI checkpoints, they stand around as witnesses. And so this, the voice officer has his little car parked there with his lights on, and now they're blocking two lanes of traffic. And so I pulled into the parking lot, and I asked the guy, I said, does neutral work? Oh, yeah. I can help you put, it was like literally five feet into the parking lot instead of blocking three lanes, uh, two lanes out of three lane traffic on oh, no, uh tow trucks here. Now guy had been standing out there for 20 minutes because the, neither him nor the voice guy wanted to push this little two seater spider 20 feet up into a parking lot. It's, it's, it's honest. It's one of those things that just blows my mind. Like cars. We would push a Buick Skylark. The thing was a tank and you'd have one guy in a flip flop pushing in neutral down an icy road. Cause we at least made the attempt not anymore. So, you know, our, our traffic shuts down too with, with broken down cars. All those struggles made for great memories for sure. My first vehicle was a 1984 Jetta that 
uh, the alternator was gone. So for the first several months, I couldn't afford to change anything of it. I got a deal on it and I, I pushed, started that thing and had to, you know, park on hills just mm-hmm. so I could pop it into first. My brother did the same thing with his Dodge Omni because his battery was dead. So he would park it so he could jumpstart it and run it off the alternator. Days. Oh, it's so funny. Um, growing up, you know, poor in Kentucky and Ohio. And as I went to school out in California for computers, my dream car was a Volkswagen Jetta. I'm like, ooh, it's a poor man's BMW. It's a poor man's B- a Mercedes. Right. Fast forward, I'm like 35, man, no lady. She's like, we're getting our first new car. I was like, what kind of car do you want? I don't know. Let's go look at Jettas. We're on our third one now. Sadly, it's our last one. All three of our Jettas are 2008, our 2012, and our 2018. We've all replaced, I've replaced radios in all three of them. Um, my 2008, as soon as I paid off, the AC went up. My, the one I have now, the lease is just up 40,000 miles. The heated seat has already gone out. The radio has been replaced twice. Um, the backup camera is not working now. The AC recirculator just shuts off after two miles here in Florida, which isn't good. And, like, the thing has 40,000. It's basically brand new. So I, I've just I've lost complete faith in Volkswagen. But I didn't bring you on here to, to slam on Volkswagen. Just, <laughs> I, I'm a Volkswagen guy. I'm a Volkswagen Toyota guy. I'm very brand loyal. And so it hurts me when I have to turn my back on one, especially Volkswagen. But let me ask you this. I know, and people who know who watch your TikToks, uh, skateboarding, snowboarding, and punk rock music plays a big part in your life, but a lot of people wouldn't think, with the exception of snowboarding, which really didn't come into its high high days until early 2000s, where does a boy uh, shuffling around uh, following his hockey coach in Canada pick up on skateboarding and punk rock? I can't imagine, especially back in the 90s. Nowadays, it's a whole different story. Every town has a skate park. But when we were growing up, it was getting ran out of parking lots, parking garages, having the police line you up because they think you're up to no good. They think you got drugs on you. How did you get into the punk music and skateboard world in, in the 80s and 90s going around Canada? Yeah, you know, um, so like I said, my, my dad took a job with Hockey Canada um, in 1990, which moved us from uh, Winnipeg to uh, the headquarters of Hockey Canada at the time, and still is, uh, in Calgary, Alberta. And um, just, you know what, serendipitously, uh, Calgary was also the unofficial headquarters for snowboarding um, at that time. Um, two brothers, uh, Ken and Dave Achenbach, uh, owned uh, the world's first snowboard-only snowboard shop. Uh, you know, there's other shops that, you know, ski shops and uh, – uh, and what have you that that carried snowboards but they were the first core snowboard shop uh, I believe in the world and um, Ken uh, went on to open up uh, the uh, summer camp for snowboarding on the Whistler Glacier a couple years later and um, you know just that Calgary was still a small town at the time um, you know a, a city but um, to have to have something that new kind of in your backyard um, and growing up as a, as a hockey kid, you know, hockey was so established at the time. And, and for me, it was just part of everyday life that it, it, it lost a little bit of its flair. And maybe I didn't even know until, um, you know, I saw uh, some, you know, goofy haired kids at the local ski hill. Um, and it was just something that I was so attracted to because it was just so, so out of left field for my everyday life. And like I said, it was right there. Um, so I, 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 I was fortunate enough that I got my hands on a snowboard, got my hands on a skateboard, uh, much to my parents' chagrin, got my hands on some early punk rock tapes. 
And um, and I bet you can name the deck, the trucks you had, whether or not you had fat riser pads or skinny ones, and what brand bearings you had because you grew up in the '90s. So I know they were German bearings. You probably didn't have Bones Brigade yet, but every one you of know, them. Yeah, you know what? Everything uh, I got from you know, if I ever needed a hockey you know hockey stick or skates or anything, it was. Um, you know, whatever is top of the line and yep. brand new and accessible to my dad at the time, I'd have it. Um, they had no interest in really providing me with these materials, um, especially for skateboarding. So uh, literally my, my first deck was a, a Santa Cruz slick. Uh, it still had a squared tail, even though they were starting to move into, uh, you know, the, the twin tip shape that we all kind of know now. Um Gullwing trucks and uh, the... Which, the by the bearing. way, Gullwings were borderline um, budget pro model skate trucks. They weren't independents. They were Gullwing. Yeah, well, and, you know, good rule of thumb back then. If they weren't indies, they were crap. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and my and my bearings, you know what? Like, I didn't even know what bearings were. My It, was, it took my friends to um, show me how to pop them out of some roller skates wheels at the garage sale that we found so it was uh, it was very much a frankenstein skateboard deck that i i first got on, on top of and um you know fortunately my, my dad did shell out for a a snowboard from the snowboard shop uh it was used and uh you know what the the gear back then was changing every single year so mm-hmm. if you got a snowboard that was two years old at the time mm-hmm. your friends definitely knew and and i uh i looked pretty goofy for the first few years out there um and and you know it was it was something that really was kind of in in my back pocket i didn't throw my whole life into it until we moved to sweden in 1992 and when we got to sweden um the culture there I don't know, just the kids were just so open and allowed to participate in everything. So there really wasn't these clicky Mm. um, subcultures where, you know, the hockey guys didn't skate or the skaters didn't play hockey. Um, Really, everybody was throwing themselves into anything they could. And we did have a small local hill that actually produced a couple of um, relatively known pro snowboarders at the time in uh, Fred and Magnus Sterner. And I played with their younger uh, cousin and son, um, brother, um, Stefan Sterner, in hockey. And, um, you know, again, like I just, for whatever reason, I had these influences at my fingertips and this very alternative from hockey um, activity. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I had some decent, uh, you know, natural athletic ability and um, I was able to progress somewhat quickly in, um, in both those sports. Well, it's funny because I started skating in second grade. Um, some of the older kids in my neighborhood was, I got a hold of uh, vision streetwear. Oh, I forget which videotape it was. Um, it was the one that had Christian soy doing the King, the King air contest. Now for those of you at home, I'm not making fun of the man for having gallwing trucks. I'm laughing because my first pro model board was the Steve Caballero white dragon with gallwing trucks, German bearings. Cause back in the day you didn't, you only had, there was two bearing companies. There were German bearings or Swiss bearings. That was it. There wasn't a bones or wasn't shorties. You didn't have all these different lines. It was Oh, you want German bearings? No, you want Swiss bearings. And I, I, I'm googling because I, ten years ago I could have told you exactly what wheels they were. I think they may have been bullet wheels, straight line budget stuff. But yeah, Gullwing trucks, first model, and I actually it was the Steve Caballero Mini. It's actually when they made the mini board because once again I was in second grade, and so yep. From then on, it was you know dead milkman skateboarding. You're talking about you know 
the transition from the fishtail flat nose to what we have now, the the double-ended boards. Do you remember one of the first models to make that change? Uh, well, I believe it's credited to Mike Vallely. Um Oh, Mike Vallely. Uh When we grew up, there wasn't uh, podcasts. So whatever a skater's name was in a magazine, it was however you read it. However and you read it, it Thrasher or Transworld. That's right. And and there was a whole generation of us that read it as Mike Vallely. Um Now, I don't know. On. Go ahead. Oh, I'm just saying, yeah, he came on to the Nine Club uh, uh, a year or two ago, another podcast, and uh, corrected pretty much the whole skate world and said, no, my name is Mike Vallely. And uh, listeners might know him from CKY2. Uh, and he's the guy that messed up four guys in the parking lot that were picking fights with skaters. Do you remember the old Omar Hassan video where he had the broken arm and he was in a parking lot and these guys, he took out four guys with a broken arm. You Omar Hassan is the only skateboarder who got Thrasher skate of the year three years in a row and had a broken arm in every damn photo because he just kept breaking that. He was, he, when I lived in Columbus, he came through Dodge skate park a few times and that boy could shred. Yeah. Uh, but he, the, took, he took switch skateboarding to um, really from from its very basics to uh, a whole new level that you know very few people could touch for years. I don't know if it was great marketing, if there's any truth to it, but do you remember the Vision Double Deck? I don't. That was probably before my time. Uh, Vi- Vision, and if you pull this out, I'm going to be psyched. This is an original. This isn't the new reprint. This is. When I was in third grade, this board came out. This wasn't mine. I didn't have Vision Double Deck money. I had 8th Street money. I had, and in the 90s, I was riding Beer City. But right around the time I graduated, the guy I went to school with since second grade who lived in the neighborhood where I started skateboarding bought this at a a yard sale, complete. And then when um, I, at the time, I'm six foot five. I was 175 pounds. But for the younger audience in the 90s, skateboarding, was at an all-time low. No one was skating. If you were skateboarding, people just assumed you're a drug addict or into bad things. Uh, we didn't have skate parks everywhere, as we said at the beginning. People just thought you were a, a ne'er-do-well. And so I don't know if it's conspiracy. I don't know if they did it, kind of like automotive companies do, wear and tear parts. But skateboard decks got super flimsy in the 90s. Now, some of them could say, oh, we wanted to make them lighter so you can do your double varial kickflips easier. No, they were breaking. And you'd go out and you would step through a board quickly. So when my buddy Terry showed up with this, I borrowed it. Still had It had in full-size independent trucks on, which you can't find hangers that wide anymore. You're lucky to find, I'm sure they're reprinting them now, but I actually looked to outfit this in about 2012, and I could not find hangers wide enough. But I started skating this because it held my big six-foot-five-ass frame, and my feet didn't hang over it. And I could still do, as you can see, the nose slides, the tail slides, and all that stuff. And not sit there and break boards every other day. Sadly, I let my brother's friend borrow that, and he never returned it. And then I found it two years later in my buddy's basement, stripped down. So he basically borrowed it, stole all the trucks and wheels off of it, and left in my buddy's basement. But yes, I do have an original, I want to say 1987, 1989 Vision Double Deck. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to understate how massive Vision was at the time, too. And um, to... As a metaphor for how much skateboarding changed in such a short period of time, um, you know, fast forward a few years and um, 
a company that was made almost purely in um, contrast to vision was blind skateboards owned by Steve Rocco. Yep. And, uh, you know, when, when blind video days with uh, uh, Mark Gonzalez and, uh, you know, future uh, movie star Jason Lee mm-hmm. came out, um, holy shit, you know, that just changed the way that we all perceive skateboarding and, and what was capable on a skateboard. And, um, and then, you know, shortly a, a year or two after that, uh, Plan B dropped two videos that just made blind video days look like it was ancient material. Um, so, you know, it's... Um, well, because before all that came out, before everybody was doing the kick flips, the hill slides, and all that stuff, the biggest, craziest thing we'd see is not as cop as doing a 360 off the top of fire hydrant. I mean, that was the, the craziest trick we saw. And then fast forward to the 90s, real small wheels so that you can land these crazy tricks and your boards don't go rocketing out from underneath you. So the boards got thinner, they got lighter, and the wheels got super small. They're almost barely bigger than the diameter of the bearings that they were in, especially yes, after they wore down. <laughs> it was crazy. But, uh, and so you got into the skate world and then obviously having access to some of the best freaking uh, ski resorts in the Western Hemisphere, snowboarding started to develop and you got into that, which the transition is very much the same. Um, carving's a little closer to surfing, but I mean, if you could skateboard, you spent a week and a half on a snowboard, don't plan to do anything else because you won't be able to walk after day two. But it was the, the, um, the world as far as the camaraderie and the whole um, environment of snowboarding and skateboarding went hand in hand. Yeah. When I got my first 1993 Burton snowboard in Ohio, we actually had to call to the ski resorts to see if they even allowed you on there. Cause most of them snowboarders were bad. They were, you know, connotation. So maybe one out of the six resorts in Ohio and Kentucky would actually allow you to take your stuff there. And so when I started, you go to the hill, you may see 50 snowboarders and like 300 skiers. Now it's completely flip-flopped. Yeah. You know, um, boy, at the time, um, and and skateboarding really saved snowboarding. Um, you know, there was a time in the, in the eighties there where other than Terry Kidwell, um, snowboarding was pretty goofy. You know, we had the, the Santa Claus toques and the neon and, Um, you know, Damian Sanders, uh, as incredibly talented as he was, you know, he's fucking, he was really hard to look at, you know, he those, had, those. You know, hard, hard ski boots on and, and sniper narrow stance. And, um, you know, it, it took a few guys to, um, really adapt, you know, Noah Slaznik came out of the skateboard world and, um, you know, he had a goofy Santa Claus too for a couple of years, but. Um, you know, him and John Cardell, um, <laughs> not to cut I you off, was, but it, not to cut you off, but for those li- listening at home, it was almost like people were dressing in case they got stuck in an avalanche. It was the brightest neon, most insane crap you could possibly find at the mall. And they weren't even hipsters. They weren't doing it. Ironically, they did it thought because neon was in, it was cool. It was futuristic. And so you would just see these and they would clash. They have a neon pink jacket with a neon orange pant. And then, like you said, a neon green Santa Claus hat, with the big bobber on the end. And it was the most absurd, obnoxious thing you saw coming down the hill. And then sadly, that's the way the media cartoons and especially commercials oh. for kids, everything in the eighties and nineties that, that if it had a board, whether it was a skateboard, a snowboard or a surfboard, everybody talked like Spicoli from fast times, which is why Michelangelo talks like that because Hollywood is lazy and they just, okay, 
from here on out, every skater, snowboarder, ha ha, dude, like the walls and all are telly, telly, tall, like for sure, dude, ha ha, telly. And that, and they used to being a guy from Kentucky who was fighting a, a, a hillbilly. It's like I didn't know anybody talked like that. All the skaters. I, so to me, I always that made me cringe when I would see that representation on TV and in movies. Oh, it's it wild, so you know. And even you know, it, it took a. I think it took well until the two thousands for for. Uh, mainstream media to to cover even the shape of skateboards and snowboards to uh you know a, a relatively uh, contemporary style um you know bart simpson was on a a squared tail <laughs> no. he probably still is and yeah i, I haven't watched an episode of the simpsons in forever but um you know but you know we i think it was pretty easy to to make fun of how whack that that style really was and we you know ultimately i think that the european riders were the last to transition um <laughs> and, and we just called it euro style through the yeah, early euro 90s. Trash. um but Burton. you know it really was the skateboarders that um that not only saved you know snowboarding and, and turned it into what it was um you know in in not only tricks but but dress and you know, our, everything became the opposite. Like, if you're mm-hmm. going to wear that tight neon stuff, then we're going to wear tones. as big of black pants as we can. We're going to wear big plaid shirts. Um, or even you know, Burton went streamlined. If you're going to dress like a skier, we're going to make fun of skiers. And, you know, it, you can't go back to those days. It was um, something very unique. Um, but also, you know, we were, like you said, we weren't allowed at every ski resort. And um, there, there was almost this, like, instinctual crossover of um the mainstream to to treat us like you know police treated skateboarders in those early days so um and I had again a, it was part of the fun and for those you watch on youtube i had a camcorder that was bigger than this keyboard and so when we would snowboard down the hill you were doing one of these jobs because it literally had a full-size vhs tape in it or if you were real cool and real confident you would zoom all the way out and you'd hold it by the handle and do it like the pro skaters did and you hold it down by your hip but we didn't have gopros we did i mean and and the battery life on I think was maybe twenty minutes on a good day, and so it was hard to even produce skate videos and snowboard videos back then. But oh. um, real quick before we transition into the main reason why you're on here, yes, I've always said like if I was going to be a professor like in a marketing class or teach up and comers about marketing and what not to do, Airwalk would be my keynote on how to turn your back against your demographic and watch your company just die. For they had uh, they had the industry and, and you know us as kids, they had our full attention. They were um, the Nike of skateboarding world. They were named after a skateboarding move. At the time, you either had Vision Streetwears, Vans or Airwalks and that was it. Yeah, that's right. And you know, it's um, actually by the time I was in grade 8 uh vans were they couldn't be less cool um nobody really rocked them until jeff rowley brought them back from the dead maybe uh in the late 90s but um you know, Airwalk, who, you, you know that you know who i credit Airwalk to very, hold i want to stand a band real quick you know who i credit to the mainstream popularity of vans outside of the skateboard world big bang theory the set <laughs> producers funny. and the wardrobe said, okay, we got a group of nerds, and this is before nerds were cool. We need to dress them outlandish. So they put them in bright red skinny jeans. Vans had these bright red, goofy, silly-looking shoes. And so you had this entire generation who grew up watching these great guys on Big Bang Theory, and that's why Comic-Con blew up. That's why Vans blew up. That's why skinny jeans, because 
these kids were looking up to what our generation, the set producers and the writers, made up to be, you know, nerds or scientists. And these kids look at them like they're heroes. And I believe that's why Comic-Con's as big as it is. That's why Vans are as big as they are. And that's why there was a period of dressing weird and wearing skinny pants because they were all dressing like Howard from Big Bang Theory. And to this day, I credit them for the nerd culture and the popularity in which it is now. It took me a very long time to get rid of my massive jeans. Um, <laughs> I, I was well into my 20s wearing very big pants. Well, the other thing I'm resentful for about that is the skateboarders, at least in the 90s, we were all just going to thrift stores. I was yeah. a size 28. I was I looked like a heroin addict, but I was buying 35 waist pants, and I was cinching them back, and they're super big, and I was cutting them off. And then here comes mainstream pop culture. Oh, we... Look what the skate kids are doing. Let's oh Jinko. And so everybody credits Jinko that no, Jinko was just ripping off the skateboard kids who were going to the thrift store and buying pants for two dollars that were too big for them. And so it's amazing how much of pop culture, at least in the late nineties, early two thousands, the skate culture created, even though people didn't want to admit it because they, they looked down on us so much. Yeah, well, and again, like you look at um how quickly um MTV um had a massive hit with the, the Jackass series mm-hmm. and really, you know, with um, Tremaine and Pontius and those guys are all from Big Brother magazine, yeah. right? And um, Dave England, you know, he was pro snowboarder when I was a kid. I didn't think he was going to end up uh, doing podcasts and being, you know, well-recognized by the mainstream. CKY2K. It's, it's absolutely wild. Real quick, back to my Airwalk thing for the people who don't know what I'm talking about. Airwalk was a skate shoe. It was around skate. It was developed around. It was the go-to skateboarding shoe. But as I said earlier, in the '90s, skateboarding was dying. The money was being lost, and so somebody over at Airwalk said, "Hey, extreme is the new catchphrase. Everything's about base jumping. It's about uh, base jumping, surfing, bungee jumping is a big thing." And so Airwalk changed their whole scheme. They dropped skateboarding for every advertising. They dropped the word skateboarding from their shoe in the catalogs. And all their all their um, footage was base jumping, bungee jumping, surfing. You don't even wear shoes when you surf. But they went down that whole thing. And I remember I was at Sunsports. Um, Sunsports was like the local mom and pop shop. They had like four or five shops in a skate park in Columbus, indoor skate park, which was unheard of back then. I remember Nick, who ran the Dublin store, came up to us and said, would you guys stop? Would you guys care if we stopped oh, carrying Airwalk products? We're like, no. They turned their back on skateboarding two years ago. And everybody across the industry did that now where before they closed, the only place you could find Airwalks to this day was pay less shoes because they literally turned their back on being like the Nike of the skateboard industry because there was a rough patch in the 90s. And at least at the time, even when Vans blew up and you saw them in Sears catalog, they still said Vans skateboarding shoes. They never lost their way and they never dropped skateboarding. And the skateboarding community has always appreciated them for that. Unlike DC shoe when Nike bought them out. Now they're just, you know, whatever shoe. Yeah. You know what? And, and speaking of Nike, uh, while I have this platform right now, <laughs> please, uh, I'm an know, Adidas guy. I, I was, I was gone. I was, I, and we'll get into this later, but I was wasted for a few years. And I don't know when Nike got accepted by um, the skateboard culture of kids. Um, but you know, when I was, when I was growing up, um, there was actually the best thing Nike did in the nineties or maybe it was the early two thousands. I think it was late nineties. And it was a, a, a university student marketing student out of uh, university of Alberta, I believe in Edmonton who um, came up with the, the commercial ideology for Nike. And it was, what if, and by all means listeners uh, YouTube this, 
uh, Nike, what if we treated all athletes like we treat our skateboarders? I'm not aware of this. I'll have Please to look it check up. Check it out. I'll include um, the vi- I'll find it, and when I post this on the failtofail.com, I'll include the videos underneath the video link for this. So you guys get a uh, failtofail.com or d-410.com, and we'll link the videos up there. But yeah, ahead. please check it out. It's uh, it's fantastically funny and clever. But even with um, uh, commercial as clever as that, uh, it still took you know another ten or fifteen years for Nike to uh, really be accepted by by skateboarding and by snowboarding for that matter, you know, and, and it's, it's a hard pill for me to swallow after supporting all these small brands uh, throughout my, my, you know, my glory days of, of both sports, um, you know, now particularly snowboarding, um, you know, it's, it's all shoe companies, ski companies, uh, racket, like Yonex. Remember, has, remember has when you wanted snowboard coverage than any other snowboard company these days in the half pipe. And it, it just, it's mind blowing to me, but you know, you can't stop progression. Remember when you wanted to throw up in your mouth and you found out the K2 made the first snowboard? Oh dude, you know what? And, and I ride, uh, I ride a K2 reissue Daniel then, Frank pro model right now, much to my chagrin, but, um, we'll see that when it, I was a kid, I, I, I wanted that board so bad, especially it was dropped when I was living in Scandinavia. And uh, I just I didn't have the the personal income to invest in it at the time, so I got stuck with a, a Kemper that I sawed the nose off of to uh, make it look like that board. <laughs> um, I was thinking about this the other day. I can understand why people would frown upon quote unquote gatekeeping, and I understand. Hey, you know, when it comes to music or movies or whatever, live and let live. But the reason Gen Xers are so such gatekeepers when it comes to certain things like skateboarding or snowboarding or punk music or underground hip-hop is because we caught such a truckload of bullshit from every other kid in the school who thought you were a fucking nerd because you skateboarded. Or I remember when I was in seventh grade because my brother's four years older than me. We lived off in Columbus right down from OSU campus. Long before Downward Spiral came out, long before, right around when Pretty Hate Machine, I wore a shirt with a big orange N on the front this stood for from it was the cover of Nine Inch Nails Broken album. What's that N stand for? Nerd. Get just people just tearing me in, wearing Red Hot Chili Pepper shirts from um, Uplift Mojo Party Pan, Freaky Stallion. Oh, Red Hot! What the hell? Getting just lambasted by my entire middle school. Two and a half years later, Under the Bridge came out. Everybody singing Red Hot Chili Peppers and Downward Spiral came out. And it's like I get it. You guys like the band that I like, and I'm not gatekeeping because. I'm mad they sold out. I'm gatekeeping because you were the same pricks who were damn near running me out of school for wearing a goddamn T-shirt. And that's why a lot of us are still even in our 40s. Sometimes we're not as bad as we are, but especially now you're just seeing all these kids walking around these 70s, 80s, and 90s band shirts, honestly. Just name one song, but they won't because they can't. <laughs> but no, And that's why you'll run into Gen Xers who are, still kind of gatekeepers this day just because we cut such a rash of shit for the stuff we did or listened to and then 20 years later when it became socially acceptable it's like well, where's my pound of flesh because i sure took an ass whooping for it yeah you know well and we also you know we we had insight into it was just a great period in between the you know how kind of disgusting and, and monetarily focused the 80s were and and then you know with as the late 90s came in and mtv was really pushing these boy bands and 
um, you know, Britney Spears and, you know, nothing against them. Everyone, they, they all did great at what they did, but there really was that dark period of time in the early nineties into the mid late nineties where, you know, if, if you were into those things, you know, punk rock skateboarding and, and snowboarding and, and, and we're deeply obsessed with them. You, you just, you had this insight into this world that just nobody really was able to tap into or understand. And then, you know, as, you know, and, and Terry Hawkinson, who was, you know, our, our Wayne Gretzky or Michael Jordan of snowboarding at the time, um, you know, he said it, he said the Olympics in 1998, were going to destroy snowboarding as we knew it. And, and it did. And, um, and, and you could see kind of the cracks in the, uh, in our protection kind of start, start opening up. And, um, you know, lo and behold, you know, it's, um, skateboarding is an Olympic sport now and, um, all the power to it, you know, those, you know, the few athletes that do get paid deserve to get paid and, Mm -hmm. and those, you know, they have to be on that, um, world-class platform to, to be able to achieve that. But, um, you know, like I said, it was just, it was something very special that not very many of us, yes, there was millions of us, but really on a, on a massive scale, there was very few people that, um, at the time. Right. Well, and so I started skating or started snow. I skateboarded for 18 years, snowboarded for 17 years. I basically gave up both. I turned 22. Well, snowboarding, I gave up later, I left from Ohio to California in 2001, and that was a dream come true to me because growing up in Ohio, skateboarding, what do you want to do? I want to live in California. I want to. So sadly, I, I had done, I had stopped skating by then, but I was still snowboarding. So I went up to Big Bear and I went to Mountain High, and then I found out, hey, uh, I'm probably going to be moving to Florida. Well, shit. Because <laughs> my snowboarding days. And so I went snowboarding at Mount High like every night after work. Um, I worked in La Harbor, California. We drive up outside of Pomona where Mount High was. Here's how long it's been since I've snowboarded. I my last pro model deck was the Jim Rippy. I think this was a 2001, 2002 Jim Rippy. Have a sparkly top sheet. Yep, with the uh, koi fish. Yes, that board was hard to come by because in Ohio the year before that that Jim Rippy model sold out because he was the first one to do backflips off of mountains. And his pro model sold out everywhere. You cannot find it. So the following year when that came out, I was on a waiting list. And talk about an interesting uh, turn of events for him, the way he went in his life. But Jim Rippey uh, was was huge at the time. Yeah, you know, and, and Jim Rippey, he was kind of like the Bob Burnquist of snowboarding, where he was the first one to really take that. You know, I'm not just a, a board athlete. I'm going to jump out of the planes and double backflips um, and all that stuff. And, and, you know, you know, you mentioned Jim Rippey in the backflip. Well, Jim Rippey was the first person to ever do a backflip on Skidoo. It wasn't a pro slider. Yes. Um, Full and, size. And it, it really, when I when I saw that, I think that it was standard films, TV7 or TV8. Mm-hmm. It just, and this was in a time when um, premieres for snowboard videos, you'd wait 12 months to, to see the new snowboard video and see what the hell everyone been doing for the past 12 months. It wasn't YouTube culture of every day. Something no, we new. all had a VHS library in our house. Yeah, exactly. Everybody and, could and, tell you, know, you what their would, favorite video was at that time. I mean, yeah, it was gnarly for sure. And you know, there was the Mac dog versus standard film kind of battles that we'd have. And, um, you know, but back in Banff where I was living in the late nineties, um, you know, the wild bills was the, basically the bar there that would, um, host the the snowboard premieres 
And, you know, SNFU would play before they dropped the movie. And, and then the movie would come out. And, you know, there'd be fucking 500 of us crammed into the sweaty bar mm-hmm. cheering a, a, a TV screen. And and it's just, you know, it's it's something that just seems so outlandish nowadays. It would just never happen. Um, but this was happening in, you know, this tourist town, ski tourist town pockets all across the world at the time. You know, basically within the same you know week because these movies would come out basically on a schedule every you know, September, something like that. It's done. And the female pro snowboarder community well, was Victoria super sm- jealous. I was going to say, picture this. 16-year-old Don, junior in high school, Sun Sports, Dublin, Ohio, meet and greet, autograph with Victoria Jelly Lois. I still have <laughs> so I mean, one the the one of the few, and she was easy on the eyes. And being a oh. young high school boy, I still have her autograph in here. I actually got to meet her at at Sunsport Skate Shop where I bought my snowboards because she was there doing autograph signings. It was it was like the first celebrity I'd ever met, and I still have yeah. her autograph. Her, she, her style, um, especially free riding, was just unbelievable. Just so natural. Um, Morgan Lafont. Uh, Sorry, I'm going to leave out a few, but Carabath Burnside who yes. came out from skateboarding and, and skating bowls. Really, is the only pro female skater, I think, in the early 90s. Um, oh, shit. Tina Basich was fantastic mm-hmm. at the time. And then, um, really, when Tara Dakitas dropped, um, you know, she oh, was at technical difficulties and she shared a part maybe with Kevin Jones. And uh, she was jumping on rails and actually backflipped off this up rail. Yeah. And um, and and board slid off this little step down Clipper. And um, you know she had a pretty short lived career. I think her career ended like doing a, a a big air stunt or something on David Letterman in downtown yeah. New York City. Um, only like ten years later, and it was it was super unfortunate. But she really opened up uh, female snowboarding single handedly. Um, to to where it is now. Um, Plus, back you know, then I, they were doing stuff on snowboards that boards weren't designed per se to do. I mean, it was easy to blow out an edge doing handrails back then, and and not being careful with you know how you're riding. And and as time went on and computer development came out, they fine tuned them more to depending on what style. Now you you don't just buy an all around board. You know, back in the day, oh, I'm going to buy something that's not super long, not super short. It's an all around board because I can only afford one and now it's all oh, your slope style. You need, here's a line for you. Oh, you're doing park. Here's a line for you. Oh, you're doing, you know, power riding. Here's a line for you. The boards are actually designed for whatever type of riding you're doing, which back then we all kind of had universal boards and it was, let's see what we can make a son of a bitch do. Yeah. that That's just it. Right. And, um, you know, the, the pioneers of the, of the, you know, the gym segment, if you will, or, or rail sliding segment of snowboarding, um, you know, it, it was cool to us, but, you know, when you want to talk about gatekeepers, well, the older gatekeepers of snowboarding had, number one, they're scared to do it or just, you know, they didn't grow up jumping on handrails, but they were not down. And you you get these like urban myths going, oh, dude, you can't slide further than 50 feet because then the, the edge is going to start peeling yeah. off the board because it gets too hot and all this bullshit that they kept feeding us. But, um, you know, it, me and me and the crew in, in Banff and, and in Calgary, um, you know, saved like a couple guys that are a couple years older than us and really set the ground in that area. Um, we we're really some of the first ones jumping on the handrails. And 
you know, we didn't have bungee cords. Um, we, we had literally packed snow in the back of like our one buddy's truck mm-hmm. and have like an old door that somebody ripped off of their rental house's you know, like a- living room. And, and, and we'd use that as a bank to go into these handrails and and at the time it was just like who can get down this fucking thing like yeah, not it, how many tricks do you have on it it was just like whatever it takes for you to get to the bottom it was the um, snow equivalent of what we did where hey grab a truck we're gonna steal these three parking blocks and there's a old lamp post over there let's go make a handrail somewhere it was the same thing but on snow it was fantastic actually i loved it those were some of the best days and you know we'd we'd be out there two in the morning high on tim horton's coffee and, uh, you know, the, the cops would give us tickets for stunting, yeah. um, which is uh, just absolutely hilarious. But, um, it, it, again, to see what that turned into, you know, Nixon watches and their jib fest era and all that really had a lot of um, participation in the growth of it and the whole forum team and, and that whole Mac dog side of things for sure. But um, it's a beautiful thing. Have you seen the documentary on Netflix called The River Runner? No. Watch it. It's about... Um, kayaking but it's about the basically the bad boy of kayaking from the 90s and how him and all his guys they basically he made a film company they're basically making snowboard and skateboard equivalent videos in the kayaking realm and it's it's about him now now he's in his 40s and his last goal in life but they're showing this footage and and i'm telling you you're going to feel like you just got done watching a skate video even though it's about kayaking it has that same footage that same music style the same whole that whole lifestyle is there and not only that it's just a damn great um and sad uh, documentary so check it out even if you're not into kayaking just watching this thing you'll get throwback memories to the old skate videos and all that you used to watch and as we all did we all got older we all put packed on weight and, and uh had lifestyle changes and so that's what i want to get to next but first i want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of the fail to fail podcast if you want to help out what we're doing here and what we do over at digital 410 media please head over to fail to fail.com or even d hyphen 410.com that's a hyphen a dash if you will and click on that Patreon link. You can sign up. It only costs you $1 a month. There's some other plans on there, but we don't care about that. We'll be happy with just your $1 a month, and that goes to pay for our online streaming service that allows us to stream all the multiple platforms like we're doing right now, web hosting and all that stuff. So go like, subscribe, sign up to $1 a month, and while you're there, please click on that YouTube link. Go like and subscribe our YouTube channel where you can see all our live stream videos, fishing videos, World War II content, and the like. And now that we got all the plugs out of the way, was there a period that – skateboarding just fell out of your your lifestyle and what you're doing like it does most of us um yeah you know um and and to you know not rewind again but some of the very first core skate snow videos that you know myself and my peers grew up with um they were called whiskey Mm -hmm. it was the whiskey series i think i had whiskey three. three yeah uh i think even four Todd Bowman, uh, the party's over. It might have been called. Anyways, um, <laughs> which one was for, the one where they had the old beat up Nova and they're running over street signs? And I, he's like, it's just a giant skateboard bumper car to me, man. I remember we were watching. My dad walked in. and was like, what the fuck are you guys watching? Yeah, it was. It was essentially the Canadian Jackass yep. about five years before Jackass, and um, you know, it was it was more breaking beer bottles over your head and puking than skateboarding and snowboarding. And, you know, for me, when those dropped, I was too young to really understand the, 
really how, how gnarly it was as far as lifestyle choices of the people we were watching. And, um, we glorified it for sure. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, you know, when, when number two and three came out, I was playing hockey in Saskatchewan, um, with, uh, future NHLers like Brad Richards and Vince LeCavier. Um, and for me, my head was, I just, I need to get out of here and I need to move to Banff or Whistler and start breaking some bottles over my head so I can be a pro snowboarder. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it, it, it became such a glorified aspect. So, you know, the party part of snowboarding and skateboarding was just so massive. And I think there was just a general big binge culture in yes, the late 90s, early 2000s, but, you know, particularly in our sports. And, um, you know, I remember in my, my early 20s showing up at uh, Millennium Park in Calgary. Um, it was maybe one of the biggest concrete parks in the world when it got built in 2000, 2001. And, um, you know, I... I'd have three beers in me and have a drag of a cigarette and I, I couldn't even skate. Like I just, um, it really hindered my athletic performance. And, um, you know, soon I wasn't even skating, you know, snowboarding is fantastically easier than skateboarding yeah. on any single day. So I was able to, you know, get by and, and shit, but you know, I, I was smoking an eighth of weed a day or every two days. Um, I was easily drinking six to ten beers. And not uh, to not to belay yeah. the point, but we're not talking about the stuff people are getting from uh, dispensaries. We're talking about steed, seeds and stems and, and straight up <laughs> dirt. It was dirt. Yeah, you that's know all what? you can that find was, was dirt. It was it was before strains. It was before indica yeah. or or sativa. It was before I yeah you know, I hadn't I wouldn't know what CBD was for yeah. twenty years. Um, so this was just like purely you know no culture. I, I literally I smoked as much weed in my Jetta as I could <laughs> to make sure that everybody around me knew that I was reeking of weed um, because I just associated it with those cultures, especially. Um, stepping outside of hockey um, as soon as I graduated. Um, whether that was a choice of mine or not, I, I suffered a significant head injury in my senior year of high school by, again, another um, future NHLer, Jarrett Stoll, caught me with a, a hell of a hit to the head. And um, and really, um, you know, at the time, Paul Correa and Eric Lindros had just been knocked out of hockey with their concussions. And um, everyone was kind of freaked out about, um, letting me pursue my hockey career as long as well as me. Um, but I took, I kind of took that as an excuse to walk away from hockey and, um, you know, I could compete in snowboarding and there was no doctors or anybody to tell me I couldn't, you know, there's no team management or anything like that. So, um, at the time I just say, I, I, you know, it, it's crazy to think in hindsight that, um, after a severe head injury, I used that as an excuse to drink myself and smoke myself into stupors on, on a very chronic basis. Um, but to me, again, it, it just it was part of the dark aspect of the culture that I just really wanted to be a part of. Um, and, and really, it was um, what I saw, you know, the people that I looked up to um, at the time doing. So, um you know, uh, uh, coming from, like I said, a very conservative prairie um, hockey family, all I wanted to do is be a stoner in the mountains, uh, you know, hucking fives and sevens. And, um, you know, and I was able to accomplish that. But, you know, in hindsight, talk about having some 
low fucking expectations of yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and, and, and I've really, you know, I, I went full head deep into, um, the party aspect of snowboarding and skateboarding So, like I said, you know, I, I couldn't even skate anymore, nor had a desire to, um, skateboarding was progressing so fantastically yeah. fast at that time too. So you just, you every single year it was just like it's never going to get bigger than this it's never going to get gnarlier than this and sure enough you know as it always does it did and um you know it with snowboarding you know the wheels are attached to your feet so i was able to fake it um but you know weed and and booze turned into booze and and hard drugs and um shit like i i woke up at 26 27 and i i hadn't even been snowboarding for a couple of years at that point um I, I i started working for red bull in, in that time as a uh sales rep in the banff uh tourist town area as well and um you know all my friends were local banff guys a couple of them had opened up bars um and, and the others had been managing in bars then and so you know no line no cover free drinks free food um it's like playing in a band without playing in the band exactly right it was very high profile and it was um it was like living the high school life for you know a a decade in my 20s that i I didn't really get to experience because i was so focused on hockey in the in the mid 90s there yeah for me it was um after high school buddy of mine had a band and i was a shitty bass player and a decent songwriter and a horrible singer but did that for years so the skateboarding thing just um women rock and roll party and that was what it was all about until up until i moved to california but and that's where a lot a lot of people go that way it's just like all oh, skateboarding is something i did in high school it's something i did in my late teens but i'm moving on to this thing now and some people keep it behind the the bench seat of their truck maybe bust out every once in a while but it just got fewer and fewer and fewer more and more far between and plus by that time when you're when you're riding dirty per se, you don't want to be out participating in parking lots where an annoyed officer might find something on you that's going to turn your skate session into a bigger deal. So why risk it when you can just go home and watch them TV and sit on your couch and burn one down? Yeah, that's just it, right? And um, you know, and especially in 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 tourist towns, um, mm-hmm. in ski tourist towns, you know, like Banff is just everyone lived like a, sh- a short walk away. You never had to get into a car. Um, I, you know, half our friends at, at Rude Boys didn't even get their driver's licenses ever in their adult lives. Cause why would you? Right. And um, it just, it was such a, it was such an easy from my apartment window. Uh, you know, I tried to go to bed at 10 PM, like a sensible time. And if I didn't fall asleep right away, I could look out my window and I could see who was bartending at yeah. three different bars bruno's devil's gap wild bills the rose and crap four bars i could see who was bartending and go oh fuck i'll get free drinks there right now in five minutes and 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 i was out of bed and on my way and um you know that i just you're talking about i i just had a, a thought um you're talking about that culture and just everything and and i just had a thought i it's so funny we hear this, this phrase, free roam children. Oh, you guys were free roam children. I was such a free roam child that I lived in Columbus, Ohio. My brother was living in Big Sky, Montana, making omelets in the morning and skateboarding all day. My dad, for Christmas vacation, bought me a Greyhound ticket at the age of 17. My sister went out and got me that snowboard the night before because I blew the, um, the rails out of my 93 Burton. 
how many people today would put their 17-year-old kid on a Greyhound bus to go five states over to go visit his brother? So I, I got stuck in North Dakota during the uh, blizzard of 1997 because we got off the interstate and couldn't get back on. And so Greyhound had to flip uh, rooms for us, and it was like looked like a brothel from the 1800s. Like it had a communal bathroom on each floor, and the rest was just like single-room hotels. Anyhow, the reason I bring this up is uh, we're talking about the lifestyle and all that, and this reminded me. Gen Gen Xers are so into the you don't snitch on your boys. <laughs> My brother worked at the ski resort. He was an omelet cook. I was there for a week. My lift pass expired my last day there. My brother wakes me up. Come on, we're going riding. Can't do my lift tickets expired and I gotta catch the bus in five hours, get down to the Greyhound. Don't worry, Eric's working the, the chair lift. Are you sure? Yeah, Eric's working the chairlift. Go down there. Yeah, Eric's working the chairlift. They scoot me past the turnstile, make it up the goddamn mountain. Halfway down, I get pulled over by ski patrol. Some Karen reported me. Uh, you jumped the turnstile. No, I didn't. It passed up. No, pass it. Lay through. I got arrested for criminal trespassing. Now, I could have said, hey, my brother works here. Him and his buddy Eric was working the turnstiles. He got me through. No, I kept my fucking mouth shut, and I took the hit. If I don't, I don't know if it's the same way it is now as it was in the 90s, but in the 90s, if you got arrested in Montana because it was such a sparse area, you could pay your bond on the spot because they knew how hard it would be for some people to have to travel 100 miles to go to court. And so my brother went around to all the employee uh, dorms and raised like 250 bucks for me to get bailed out so I could make it to my freaking Greyhound bus that night. And luckily, when I got back to Ohio, I had a Wendy's paycheck waiting on me so I could pay all those people back. But I didn't sell. I didn't th- sell anybody out. I and back to that whole '90s skate- snowboard culture. I had the long hair down past my shoulder, the undercuts, handcuffed in my Burton green pants, my long alien wor- workshop shirt being escorted down Big Sky Montana sidewalk, and all these skiers just looking at me like, "Yep, there goes another." one. <laughs> <laughs> Took me to the truck. Like, what do you want to do? I said, "Pay bail." I got a I got a greyhound to catch. Didn't sell anybody out, man. I just took the lick and and took it, but. You know, it was such a lifestyle thing. It was, hey, your your pass is expired, man, but it's a powder day. We got to go. So, okay, here we are. But thanks for getting me put in jail, Dick. <laughs> that's unbelievable. Yep. You know, that's, uh, that's one thing I can say. I never ended up in a drunk tank or, or any, any, any jail trouble. Criminal trespassing. And you know what the bitch of it was is when I was in the main office and they're waiting for the cops, ski patrol coming in. Oh, so-and-so lift got hit by lightning last night. And I was like, see, I told you the lift let me through. I told you it was a malfunction because they're like replacing parts. Like, no, that lift worked just fine. <laughs> like, son of a bitch. I had to call my mom. It was in, call my dad. Yeah, I'm getting arrested, by the way, because I was 18 at that point. So No, I was 17. Yeah. No, I just turned 18. I was I turned 18 my senior year of high school. So, but yeah, I got I got arrested for criminal trespassing in Montana because my brother wanted to go snowboarding one extra day. That's wild. Yeah, Montana's a it's wild country out there. And so you've given it up. You're living that hard lifestyle, and with whiskey and booze and cigarettes comes bad eating and just comes bad lifestyle altogether, man. Yeah, you know. Um boy and, and like i said you know everyone worked at, at the pub so and you know i didn't i just i didn't have the knowledge or nor cared to listen to any you know local hippie about nutrition so um i was i was eating beef dips and burgers and pizza and you know i literally like 
gas station sandwiches because it was cheap. Um, whatever we could shove into our bodies before we did a whole bunch of blow for the you know remainder of the day and, and into the next day. So it, it was at the time, like I just I thought it was the greatest lifestyle in the world. Um, Fast metabolism, things are going good. And, and it, 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 yeah, it, it catches up to you for sure. And, you know, there's yeah, right around 35, gener- <laughs> right yeah, around 35 dude. is when it all catches up to you. Next thing you know, you're shopping for a size 38 pant. You're like, what the fuck happened? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? And, um, I, I, I blew up. So I, uh, I knew I had to get out of Banff. Um, and, and it was at 31, um, at 31, my, my dad was, um, you know, he had, he had accomplished so much and, um, in, in his hockey career and, um, he was, uh, he took a job, Steve Eiserman started, um, became the GM of the Tampa Bay lightning. And, mm-hmm. um, Eiserman wanted my, my old man to come join the, the coaching staff there. And, um, he went down there and it was almost like a retirement gig for him. Um, it was going to be his last few years, I really think. And, um, in the first playoffs that year, he, um, he had a headache, and uh, they got him into the hospital, you know, through the lightning connections or whatever. And um, they had a quick biopsy and uh, he had a brain tumor. And, oh, shit. Uh, he, he, uh, he unfortunately passed away within 24 months of, of that, um, um, finding that out. And, um, you know, it, it was just, it was so devastating, the, the news that he, he got this terminal cancer. Um, it was right at the same time, uh, one of my best friends and, and snowboard idols, Pete Nevin, um, he was fighting a brain tumor as well. It was coming and going and, um, you know, he had surgery and, you know, it was corrected and gone and then it came back and they, he, Pete ended up dying at, uh, like 42, I think, um, only like six months after my dad died. Um, and, and it was just, it was overwhelming. And, um, I, I left Banff and took a job with Sleeman Breweries, uh, who I'm employed by um, still to that's this gotta, day. Not um, not to cut you off, but that, that's got to be so hard because I went through a similar issue where my uncle was in the hospital. He had a pulmonary embolism in his brain. My cousin came down to see him on life support. My stepmom got up to clean the house for him. Two hours later, she's on life support because she had a embolism in her lung. And so I know to go through that, that it's when you lose a parent that is life changing, but you still somewhat have that age difference. But to go through that and then have someone of your, your contemporary go through the same thing, it's, that's really when you open your eyes and start to think, okay, um, that guy was my age. We live the same lifestyle. Um, maybe I need to reevaluate. Yeah, it was gnarly. Unfortunately for me, you know, and Pete, Pete was, um, he was a kind of a generation above me. I think he was four, four or five years older than me, but, um, he, um, it, it just, it sent both those deaths sent me into an already, you know, from a bad situation into an already, uh, more vicious spiral down. And, um, you know, I, I, I became a, I left Red Bull after eight years and became wow. a beer rep out on Vancouver Island. Um, so as soon as I get there, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, emotionally devastated um I'm, I'm out of shape i'm years into drug abuse and poor nutrition and um and very very much gone from the athletic um teenager that i i was as a hockey player pursuing that career so 
um, you know, I show up on Vancouver Island not knowing anybody, and uh, I've got this beer MasterCard, <laughs> yeah. um, free beer. Beer's literally cheaper than water for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, any pub that serves my beer, I can eat there for free. So it's just beef dips, French fries, wow. hamburgers, whatever. Um, and I, I ballooned up to 245 pounds at my peak um, and, and, and basically stayed there for most of my 30s. Um, you know, and, and I made some really great friends out there. Um, unfortunately they, you know, they enjoyed the same, um, lifestyle late night leisures as, as me. Um, they were, you know, they weren't, um, snowboarders or skateboarders. They're all musicians. Um, but you know, and, and very grounded people, but same vices as I had. Same community. And so it followed me there. And, um, you know, it wasn't until my, my wife and I had, um, our, our son Hugo, um, that, you know, after, after being there for a year and, and I thought that having a son would change me immediately. And it, it really didn't. Um, so after being there for a year, I just was like, fuck dude. Like I, I can't, I can't be here just like I couldn't be in Banff. Um, and uh, we were pretty isolated out there from family. Um, yeah. my, my wife, Brendine's um, family were all in Regina. She's got these just salt of the earth parents. Um, you know, prairie parents with, with just fantastic values and just kind hearts. And it, it felt like a crime keeping uh, our son away from their influence and um, keeping me in the influences that were around me. So, um, you know, I, my, my wife didn't want to come back to the winters and the prairies. Um, but that was part of that grown up sacrifice that we were willing to make to, to give our son a better life. And, um, you know, we, we got here um I showed up in uh, late December, 2019. Um, Brendan and Hugo showed up in, um, I think early January, something like that. And then um, we stayed at our parents' house while we looked for uh, a house to, to buy out, out here. And um, we took possession of our house February 15th that year. And uh, as we all know, March uh, 15th was basically the first lockdown, I believe, maybe March 13th. So I want to pause. Um, I want to pause right there, real quick, just to, before we go too far over something you said. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, this this gets you know people recognize this in in college athletes who are football players or swimmers, but to go from being something, I'm a skateboarder, I'm a hockey player, I'm a snowboarder, I'm in a band, to go from being something when your entire identity is based around being something to all of a sudden just being. Joe Schmo, that it it does have an impact on people. You know, you miss the skateboarding, and not just the skateboarding, but being a skateboarder or being a snowboarder, or once again a, a football player. And so people, you know, they'll they'll notice that next college athletes, but it doesn't matter if even if you did, you know, off the grid sports like that, going from being a something to just being a regular Joe, it it can impact you sometimes. Yeah, you know, I um I. I I still really don't know anybody out here. Um, yeah. You know, if, if anybody that watches my TikToks, it's just, I, I prop my camera up against my backpack and, uh, and it's just me out there. Right. Solo and, sport. Uh, yeah. It's just, you know, but you know, we got here and, and COVID lockdowns happened almost immediately. And even when we got here, I was drinking 10 to 15 beers a day, um, a bag of ripple chips for dinner and, um, and just, in a very unhealthy position physically and mentally. 
super dark. And um, about a month into COVID, April of that year, I just, I can't say it was a, an epiphany. I just decided I can't fucking do this anymore. I'm going to die if this, you know, if I, I see what's happening around me around the world and what's going on. And, and this is going to kill me and I I need to be here for my son and and my wife and and for myself. And um, I, I, I just, I remember going, okay, I'm just going to have a few beers a a day. Um, And you know what? I never got hung over again after that day, but um, you know, for the next eight weeks, I guess, um, up until my 40th birthday, my 40th birthday, I had uh, two beers. Um, we had some greasy prairie pizza and, um, I didn't drink until camping on Canada day long weekend. It's right before the 4th of July, um, July 1st. Um, and my, my work had given me a, a bottle of champagne for my 40th birthday. And nice. so we're camping and around the campfire, I said, Hey, let's, uh, let's crack this open and, and toast to, uh, just us and, and, you know, the nature around us. And I woke up with a hangover the next day. And, and you know, not a big one, but just like enough to be like, this is fucking not worth it. And, and just, it's getting silly. That was the last time I had a drink. And, um, it, it's, it, it's phenomenal. Again, the, I was, I was always able to accomplish something that I put my, my mind to it, but the, the ripple effect of not waking up hung over or even a little bit of dehydrated. um, it just domino affected. So, you know, even, even in my gnarliest, I, I was always known for somebody that woke up early, yeah. um, generally. And, um, you know, I started waking up at five, 6am with nothing to do. And so I, I had some sneakers, some like literally the only pair of non skateboard shoes I had for like 20 years. And it was my brother owned a skateboard shop in Calgary, um, at the time and and etnies had come out with these like cross trainers and really? he's like here have these and, and so I, and they weren't they weren't meant for running they're meant for like pickleball or something sure. and, and i i just threw them on and i just i started running and it wasn't pretty no, um, shen splints lower back because yeah you know what and, because and of the say, shoes i've glossed i've glossed over this but i had chronic back problems um from pretty much the time when my dad was diagnosed with cancer until this period and um, it's funny to the you point say- where like we'd be on vacation in Mexico and I'd be sleeping on the concrete floor the whole trip and um, being poolside, just drinking the pain away. All I like, couldn't even enjoy trips and shit. So no, it was funny. I was going to in that regard too. I was going to joke earlier when you when you're talking about you know deciding that uh, you want to quit. I was like, well, you know, after you've pulled your back out for the third time, putting on your shoe, <laughs> we've all been there. And it's crazy because I used to have I used to deal with a lot of back pain too. And so did the running, did you maintain the running or did you like, oh, this ain't going to work for me? No, you know what? So I ran through um, the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, I felt comfort while I was running. Got to get to mile Um, three, mile three, then your body goes numb, then you can go further. Yeah. You know what? Like, I think at that point it was like, and I don't know what the conversion is into miles, but I was doing like two kilometers. Okay. So 5k is 3.2 miles for us. So a little over a mile and a half. 
Right. So like, I don't know. And maybe it'd take me 15 or 20 minutes to do that or something. Like that well, no one, time. no one gets um, up and runs a 10 minute mile. I mean, when I first started, cause I, that was me too. You know, I got up to two full, I got up to two forty five, shopping for a size 38 pant and ended up in the hospital, two kidney stones because I was running a business, working in terrestrial radio, getting up at seven in the morning, working till seven on the radio and then going back to work. So I was, I was literally consuming three, uh, monster whites, a bottle of five-hour energy and three Mountain Dews a day for like five years, and I ended up in the hospital. Two, two-millimeter kidney stones, and that was it for me. That's my that was my turning point, and so yeah. the running is what started for me too. And and one of the things about running that people don't think a lot of, if you have a lot on your mind and you want to process something, even if you don't run, just start walking. You will get a lot of <laughs> a lot of shit sorted out in your head if you do a three-mile run real quick yeah yeah you're you're dead right and um i read this uh i picked up this book i I can't i i must have just been youtubing you know how to cure back pain and there's this book that came out in 1989 by dr john sarno it's called how to heal back pain like as as obvious of a title as you could ever ask for yeah and it's it's all completely mental i'm not going to get into it um I, I, I recommend related. it to any listener that has struggles with back pain, um, sciatic, mm-hmm. um, any kind of joint pain, because it the lessons in this book, and it's such an easy 200-page read, I was convinced that this book, after try, spending thousands and tens of thousands of dollars on acupuncture, massage, I, I let this guy in Chinatown, Victoria... Uh, bloodlet the back of my legs. He sliced <laughs> the back of my legs. He said that that would help. It, what, it was didn't. he out of leeches that day? <laughs> Dude, yeah, right. Like literally, but that, you know, that's a, that's a metaphor for how yeah, far I went sure. for, for trying to heal my back. By the time I was at page 185 of this book, my back was completely healed. Um, and I remember the morning, it was September 22nd. And um, I, I early morning run, the moon's still up. It's dark out. And, this uh, song by the band Nothington came on, a punk band by BYO Records. And it, it's kind of got this emo connotations and the lyricism. And I was looking up at this full moon and I just started sobbing mid-run, just crying uncontrollably. And w- when I got home, my back was was fine. Mm-hmm. You let it all out. S- since then, I've been building half pipes in my backyard. I've been shoveling for old ladies in my community um, I've never had a back problem since, or, or even like, um, it, it's, it's, it's a fantastic reality. Um, and, and not just like the comfort that I have and that my family has and not having to deal with, you know, chronic back pain anymore, but the thought that life is a little bit more magical than I gave it credit for by reading a book and, um, you know, rethinking ideology you know and understanding that i don't have everything all figured out and that life isn't as dark as um i necessarily thought it was um you know it just it uplifted my spirit and and if it wasn't for that moment um i don't know like it it gave me again it was just like another reason to to not drink to to stay sober to you know stay the course and um Within, boy, uh, what did I say? My last, my, my 40th birthday was June 16th. Um, you know, my last drink was two weeks after that. Um, 
I was probably about, I'd lost significant weight um, in that little time. So I was probably at 210 pounds. Yeah. And by mid-October. How tall uh, are you? I, I'm six foot. Even. Okay. And, and by, uh, by mid-October, I was uh, 165. Wow, that's um, that's damn skinny. At my so skinniest, yeah, it, it was. Um, I, I became so focused on running. Well, it's because you got um, an addictive personality. I do. So uh, I, 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 I and through YouTube again, the magic of YouTube, I discovered Rich Roll, um, a vegan um, uh, long distance runner mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, overweight alcoholic at 39 and at 43, 44, he was on the cover of men's health. Wow. Um, and, and his podcast was phenomenal. And, and through his podcast, it actually, um, I think he was the first person I saw interview Andrew Huberman. I could be mistaken, but um, if you're not familiar with Andrew Huberman, um, leading neuroscientist who actually um skateboarded at EMB in San Francisco with the Carroll brothers in the early nineties, <laughs> but never had a skateboard career in front of them and took off in neuroscience. It's just this crazy story of synchronicity in all of our skate lives. Um, but you know, and, and, and all that really, like I started creating this like YouTube world of people that inspired me. And so I would, you know, just devour information by, you know, interviews of Tom Bilyeu's, Andrew Huberman's rich roles. I started breathing with Wim Hof. I downloaded his app. Um, I, I ice baths, ice showers. You know, you're um, in a wormhole when the Barkley marathon shows up as a suggested video. You're like, what the hell? Oh, <laughs> when I first came across the Barkley marathon, I was like, all oh, these guys are fucking nuts. And it, it's, go ahead. yeah, you know what? And all these things that just seemed like, uh, you know, a world away from me a year earlier that, you know, something I would never even be interested in. Um, just, just completely glued into me, um, and, and and you know now I'm I'm it's two years later and um, I've got my you know I've completely got my life back. Um, I, I can't overstate that. Um, you know I, I'm I'm the father I want to be for for my son, the mm-hmm. husband I want to be for for my wife, and you know the the athlete I want to be. You know I'm I'm gonna be in my mid forties, pretty pretty damn quick here and i'm skateboarding at the level that i was in my early 20s and, well i was going to ask um, you at what point in your weight loss did you pick the deck back up and hit the streets the, so the following summer um i i literally i uh it was like the the spring the next year there's an indoor park in regina you know the basement of the skateboard shop and uh all i you know I, if you watch any of my clips, I'm I'm a big fan of the boneless, mm-hmm. and uh, your acid drops mine. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I, I I put my skate down. I did the boneless on the quarter pipe, and uh, I was like, "Holy shit, that was terrifying!" But I I, I think this is what I want to do with you know all this free time I have in a sober life. Isn't um, it scary though that you can't forget how to ride a bike, but you can definitely forget how to fucking skateboard? skateboarding is a plant best watered chronically right so uh i got on one for the first time 20 years and it took everything i had just to to roll down the street and do a shove it i'm like well i used to be semi-pro with the crap and i've completely lost my balance it's insane it's insane i can still ollie like a bitch but my my riding down the street balance because my daughter moved down here and she brought a plan b board with her i was like ooh, let me see that and you know it took me about i had to tighten the trucks down she had them way too loose but if I if I take it out and spend a good day on it, and which is I want to ask you at forty years old, how are the falls? Hand, how are you handling the falls now, man? 
um, again, like, I, and I, I credit it to the literature of, of this Dr. John Sarno book. And, and there's an old 2020, if you don't want to read the book, there's a 2020, remember that TV show, yeah. Dateline or some mm-hmm. shit from the 90s? And it's like minutes. a half hour um, episode that they did on this book in like 1996. Wow. And, and the, the host of the show, who has chronic back pain at the time, he says, he, he basically lived my experience 25 yeah. years before I did. Um, he didn't, you know, he didn't start skateboarding again or anything, but you know, he, his chronic back pain came to an end. Um, and so, like I said, it's not just the back. I, I really, um, I had, I had really bad ankles or at least I thought I did in the nineties. I'd be rolling them all the time. And, um, you know, when I rolled my ankle, I'd rest it, I'd put it up, I'd ice it, I'd baby myself. I just, I don't do that at this point. And I heal so damn quick. I don't, I don't get injured anymore. I definitely impact hard um, and I get hurt, but I'm not injured. And and I'm, I've been able to skateboard relatively aggressively for two straight years without any time off. Um, Even through the winters, I've been skating the indoor park. So um and 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 snowboarding as well right jumping off roofs all last winter and and on handrails and shit and i've taken some heaters for sure but um like i said like i don't know if you know it's it's the full package of yeah i i I don't i don't say silly shit like oh it hurts more now than it used to i just i don't believe in that I believe that with my nutrition and that's what i was going to ask you we're not dietitians but i'm sitting here thinking because like I've uh, I got my shirt on. I've ran. I've now ran four savage races, two uh, rugged maniacs. I want to do a tough mutter, but and I used to. I I had the same addictive personality you have. So when I started running, I actually at the time I was going to the gym twice a day. I blew out my elbow. I was afraid I was going to start gaining my weight back. At the time, I couldn't do a faster than a thirteen minute mile on the treadmill because the treadmill was too hard. And I started running outside. Next thing I know, I'm running seven miles a day just for fun i'm going out running 12 miles on a weekend but that six years later and like right now my ankles are cracking my knees are killing me but i'm sitting here wondering you know at the height of all that i got down from i went from 240 down to 207 at 65 that's pretty damn small but after the kidney stone i swore off this crap here which clearly i'm back on the wagon um i went straight water and gatorade for a year and a half my skin cleared up, and I was on straight water until we Hurricane Irma came through. I had no power. I'm on a well, so no power, no water for 16 days. So every day I was getting up, going to the gas station, dropping $70 on a, on a power generator that somebody let me borrow after day nine because I worked in radio. When their power came on, they let me borrow it. Didn't give me AC, just gave me enough to turn on the lights and the TV. So every morning I was spending $70, $80 a day on gas for the generator. I was taking a five-gallon jerry can across town to fill up the tap water. So we're saving that for the three birds, the four cats, the two dogs. This shit here was all over the place. And so I fell off the wagon hard. And, and as you're sitting there talking to me, I'm thinking, I wonder if the knee pains and the, and, the, and the cracking in my ankles, if it would maybe go away if I can get back off this crap again and, and go straight well, water I'll tell and Gatorade. You, um, there's a... The connection between sugar and and, and um, what it does to your brain, but also the inflammation it causes. And um, I should know better. I've had Vinny Tortridge. Uh, are you familiar with Vinny Tortridge? No. I've had him on this show. I've had him on my other podcast. He's on Adam Kroll all the time. He is 
the creator of No Sugar, No Grains. He's the guy who helped Margaret Cho lose all that weight. He's right. Howie Mandel's personal trainer. He's he's like one of the first celebrity personal trainers. To this day, he still kayaks 500 miles, goes on 500-mile bike rides. Anyhow, and his whole thing is if you don't eat grains and no sugars, and it's better for your liver and all that, but to your point, he always says the sugar creates inflammation, swelling, and all that stuff. And so I'm sure if I can... Get at least off the soda, getting it back on more water, which I've been trying recently because I'm trying to get my weight back down. Because I don't, I'm like, I'm 44. It's like, I, I don't want to stop because, you know, come on, gatekeeping. I'm kind of back to where we were back when we were skating. Oh, wow, snowboarding's Olympic sport. OCR is going to be an Olympic sport in the LA Olympics in 2028. OCR is obstacle course racing. That's your yeah. savage race, Spartan race, which. They've come a long way. If you actually go on YouTube and watch, like some of the when ESPN teamed up with them, they're doing coverage of the uh, the Spartan races. It's it's kind of cool to watch because unlike a road race, road race, okay, you see the marathon, the five people in front, one of those five people, most likely the cat in first, unless he sprains his ankle, he's going to win the race. But in OCR, you have the people who are fast runners, then you have people more proficient on obstacles, and so you'll see two people up in the lead for six and a half miles. But mile seven comes. One mistake on an obstacle, and a guy who's in eighth place the entire day wins the damn thing. And it's just so it's it's an exciting, it's a great spectator sport. So it's kind of funny. I'm been doing it for five years now, and now it's going to the Olympics. But anyhow, I'm scared that I'm not going to be able to achieve some of the personal um, goals that I have in savage in obstacle course racing because my knees and and my ankles are hurting so bad right now. But I. I just got to suck it up, quit drinking the nonsense, go back to water and Gatorade and see if, if I can start running again. Because I went yeah, from running know, 15 miles a week to running three now if I'm lucky. I get on my – I don't have a Peloton. I have a, my, a mixed fitness bike. So I get yeah. on that now so I can still burn in calories, but I want to get back to running. Yeah, you know, um, and, and we'll, we'll get back to sugar in a sec. But I don't know. There's something about running, you know – especially people that don't run, you know, go, Oh, well, I don't run because it's hard on your knees and, and so forth. But, you know, it seems to me like we were designed to run more mm -hmm. than anything. You know, we weren't designed to ride bikes. We were designed nope. to walk and run, you know, that's millions of years of evolution. If you want to believe in that is what, how we were created. We were, we were born to run. And, um, you know, I attribute it again to my health, but the, the diet side of things just cannot be overstated. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I love cola, um, you know, as much as anything, but, um, you know, and I love beer. Um, we're in a very fortunate place right now in the world or in, you know, this time is there's a lot of great options. Mm -hmm. So like the, the fizzy waters and the flavor that somehow they're able to put into those damn things, uh, with the, I, I'm sure it's going to catch up to me somehow. Um, but you know, those Bublés or, uh, Lacroix or whatever, LaCroix, you, yep. um, those have really, um, replaced everything in my life. Um, and, and, and even in craft beer now, there's a whole segment of progressive, uh, non-al craft beer with little to no sugar and like 25 calories in a tall can. Yeah. Um, and you really, you know, they, even hop water is the thing now up here. I don't know if it is down no. there um, <laughs> where it's just like bubbled water with, with hops. And it's just like, it, it, if you've been off beer for a couple of years, it definitely tastes <laughs> like beer to me. And tastes um, better than the St. Paul's sure. girl. <laughs> but it, you know what? It, it's able to give you like that adult drink fizz and, and, and flavor. Um, yeah. 
and, and not really, you know, make your life as, as boring as just water would be. Right. Um, I, I guess. Um, but yeah, you know, it's the, the sugar part of it, me being conscious of sugar is, is bigger than anything. You know, I think you can s- still be, um, have the same results eating, um, you know, people eating all meat or, or all vegan or, or anything in between. But I think the, the package product shit with like a, a, a cartoon character logo yeah. is what causes inflammation. Um, and, and ultimately inflammation causes disease and, and, and pain. Right. So it's such a mind fuck too. Cause I tell my brother, I'm like, I said, dude, I have in my prayer, you know, before my last year or so, I was like, I'm like, I have the, the dedication to run 12 to 15 miles a week plus go to the gym three nights a week, but I can't not eat like an asshole. How fucked up is that? That I have the dedication to, I'll go out and run a seven mile savage race, but I'll go home and eat a pee. It's like, how fucked up is that? That I can't control, you know, this one aspect. I can, I can work 12 hours and still go run three miles or, you know, Oh, I've worked 12 hours. So I got to run three miles. If I would have worked eight, I'd run seven, but I still cannot stop. You know, I'm still buying fucking nerds and, and goddamn sweet tarts and all that shit. It's like, why can I not stop eating like an asshole? If I have the motivation to do all this crap. And I think maybe part of me is like, well, if I do all this crap, then I can eat all shit and not be 400 pounds. But I also think I eat all this crap. I'm six foot five right now. I'm two twenty two. I'm, I'm, I'm not happy, but like when I was at 210, 215, I'm like, if I would stop eating like an asshole, I would probably be ripped and like be like 195. Oh yeah, if and, you flip it the other way and uh, and not work out like a, a, a sat, like like the Hulk, yeah, and, and actually limit what your intake is, intermittent fast a bit, um, you'll get you'll you'll be as ripped if not more. And um, I try to I try not to eat until noon, but what I've done. When, now, when I go to the gym, yeah, I'll do some arm exercises, but I actually went to a new gym because they have a 47-rung monkey bar, so I can actually practice that OCR-type stuff. Yeah. But it's like I want to stay stay with it. But anyhow, back to you. Um, I'm guessing you did like most of us old bastards during COVID and picked up TikTok, and that's how you got into it. I did it to see what my daughter was doing. That's how I got on the TikTok. Yeah, you know what? Um, so, I again, being a punk rock kid, um, I – it's, I'm still a beer rep. Um, I'm a sober, sober beer rep. So, you know, I, I just see it as being punk as fuck. Yep. Um, well, I was going to mention that earlier and, and I don't want to drag it out, but maybe I'll have you on again for, we had such subcultures to subcultures when it came to punk rock, you were either punk rock or you're straight edge. You listen to the same music, but one of them was you wore the X's on your hands and you're proud of it because right. we had subcultures to subcultures. That's another conversation for another time, but that's how crazy we were. You couldn't just be punk. I'm going to be punk to be a punk. I'm a straight edger. I'm going to walk around with X's on my hands all the time. Oh, yeah. You had to be punker than the next punk, yep. right? <laughs> so, um, but really, you know, it, it, it was. And you know what? It To be fully honest with you, it does hurt my soul a little bit because I, I, I do make my living um, as I'm bettering myself in my own world. You know, I'm selling, you know, Pabst Blue Ribbon and Colt 45 malt liquor to, you know, the most vulnerable in my community for sure. And that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, it doesn't make me super happy, but, um, it's a, it's a fantastic company and it, it's really all I know. Um, it's been my career, um, since my early twenties. Um, I kind of feel the same rep, way. So. I'm, I closed my business after 18 years, but I ran a computer repair shop, my T firm. So, you know, I'm, 
it's like the internet's bad. It's killing our kids. It's making them fat. But here, let me fix your computer and hook up <laughs> your iPad and all your your internet stuff. Now I do MSP where I'm managing business networks. So I don't feel as guilty about it. But I'm kind of the same way. It's like I'm now you know I don't skate, I don't snowboard, I run, I fish, and I do OCR and World War II reenactment. So I'm all about the outdoors life. And but I make my living off of making sure people can sit down behind a screen and do their work all day. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's just that's that's life, and you know, there's. I don't know. Um, the, the role that I have, um, it, it, you know, I never have to miss a soccer practice or, um, you know, the, there's a lot of um, great positives in being a territory sales rep for sure. Right. So, um, you know, it's something that uh, I'm sticking with uh, for now, but, um, you know, my, again, like I've, I've proven to myself that life can um, take your, you know, take you in very crazy directions in a very short period of time. So, um, you know, who knows moving forward, but you know what, and to your credit, I wanted to say before we moved on to it, I've been down to Florida and it's not easy eating well down in Florida. <laughs> and it's not so, easy uh, running. It's so damn hot. I would have to, I run oh. like nine 30 at night in the summertime. Cause it's like running through a fishnet. I mean, you literally feel like, and I, you know, it's so funny back before I became a stupid runner when I would skate, you'd see these people, why is a guy running down the street damn near naked? He's got nothing but a super, why you got to wear shorts so small? Dude, if I could run yeah. naked now, I would. I When I first started running, I had the long basketball style shorts, double extra large t-shirt, and you get done, you feel like you're, you're weighing 20 pounds, everything's soaking in sweat, and now it's like, give me the smallest pair of Russell shorts you can find, a pair of Sanctionese, a hat, and and something to put my cell phone in, and I'm gone. Cause it's well, like, three weeks ago here, it was uh, well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> And I don't know what the cold conversion is, but three months from now, I'll be running with goggles in minus 50 Celsius, where, um, you know, if any exposed skin is open, um, I'm getting frostbite in a matter of minutes. So, yeah, I'm looking um, forward to uh, it. It's, <laughs> it's so, ge- geography is a, a fun aspect of running for sure. Yeah. Well, and I'm at sea level. Like, if you know, I went back home to Kentucky where I was born and went running, I would die. I'd probably run like a 15 minute mile because just the sea level is so different, you know, uh, running at level. So, is TikTok your, your main social media platform? Or, yeah, so, so to get back to it, um, because I'm a beer rep, uh, I went on to TikTok because a few of my uh, bar and, and retail accounts were advertising through TikTok. So, mm-hmm. I jumped on there to um, basically check out what they were promoting and, and take, you know, um, screenshots for PowerPoint, you know, um, as examples of what people can do, go back to my company with. And, uh, I don't know, you know, I guess in the late nineties, early two thousands, we had Adobe premiere, a buddy of mine, and we started making, you know, (laughs) shitty little snowboard videos of that. And we just, I love putting music to, to skating and snowboarding. And, um, and then I, you know, what really caught on was, you know, my, my story of, you know, my physical and, and mental trend transformation. Um, you know, so I, I still sprinkle my content with a little bit of that, but you know, you watch it for the most part, it's just me with uh, my influence in, in punk rock and um, me doing my thing on my skate and snowboard. Um, again, pretty DIY all by myself and even running, you know, I've, I've ran over 3000 kilometers since starting, which is basically from, you know, um, North Dakota to the coast, you know, Seattle. Um, and I I haven't ran a kilometer or a mile with anybody else in that time. It's, yeah. 
strictly been me. Well, um, you will be. I don't want to go to it. I've said on this podcast so many times, but I would just say this: the, the first time you run with a group, whether you go to a fun five k somewhere or you go find a run group, you will be blown away because. You will never realize this until you do it. You have a natural instinct. Your pack instinct kicks in. All of a sudden, you're gauging people. I can run faster than them. I no, can't run faster than him. And you will instinctively find your position in that pack. And your your pace and your splits will increase. You will cut time off your pace and splits without even feeling it just because your natural instinct to fall into that pack. You, you will be surprised. I say just do it for the mind fuck of it. Just one time, go downtown if you know where the. Oh, every Wednesday morning I see these group assholes running down the street. Go run with them one day, and your mind will be blown away how the pack instinct and just um, pacing somebody, running behind and let them block to win. It just it's a game changer. It'll blow your mind, especially if you never ran a, a mile with somebody. It's it's just weird how that natural instinct comes out of you. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm sure it'll happen one day. For for right now, I've got. Uh... None of my friends back back west want anything to do with it, and uh, I haven't met anybody else out here to, to participate with me. Well, I tell people, I don't run for the feeling I get while I'm running. Running sucks. I, get, I run for the feeling I get when I'm done running, and that's what I'm running for. Sure. But um, the, the reason I ask you about the platform is because at the height of my weight loss, you know, I started posting pictures on Instagram or just checking at the gym on Facebook. And part of the reason I did it is I knew that people on the Internet love – to push people over they love to knock them down a peg and so i figure if i start posting pictures or checking in at the gym and you know posting pictures of me getting skinnier then i know that there's gonna be somebody waiting and it happened i'd be at the radio station in the break room and i'm just looking at the honey buns and a salesman come in I'm like yeah go ahead and get that honey bun that's an extra hour and a half at the gym i'm like you're right you want me to fail i'm, I'm not gonna give you and so it helped motivate me by knowing that there's people just waiting for me to fuck up, to start gaining that weight back and not going. And so, but the reason I bring it up is I remember the first day I got the message from somebody I went to school with who was probably 30, 40 pounds of weight himself. And they said, Hey, just want to let you know, I saw your pictures, saw what you've been doing. And I started doing X, Y, or Z three months ago and I've lost 20 pounds. And then I had a veterinarian. She was probably in her thirties. Um, f- probably 30, 40 pounds overweight, wore baggy clothes. And um, I went back six months to clean her computers, and she had dropped probably, I don't know, she's probably the weight she was when she was in high school. And she said to me, I did it because I saw all the pictures of you running and checking in at 5Ks. And, and it's like, holy shit. It's like when people start telling you that your silly little photos or your videos you skateboarding in 40 motivates other 40-year-old guys to pick up their skateboards or build quarter pipes on the side of their house with snow in the backyard like you do with your with your kid. And and it's weird to be in that position, especially a bunch of Gen Z ex-skaters and snowboarders and punks and dreads of society to have random people send a message saying, hey, uh, you're inspiring me. Keep it up. Have you gotten those messages yet? I'm sure you had. Yeah, you know what? The surprising thing is, is I haven't had one single negative knock message. Um, but really, the, the surprising gift of this whole TikTok world is just how how big of a supportive community is involved in it. Um, it it's it's unbelievable. Um, and and really, you know, I guess what you put out to the world, you, you receive and. Um, I try to have a really 
um, positive, but very sincere um, communication in my videos. You mm-hmm. know, I, I don't, I don't really set anything up to be phony or bullshitty. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I don't do the trends. Me and it's how I perceive the world and how I'm presenting myself. But um, yeah, you know what? I, I, I just, I don't, I don't have another, like I have a small Instagram account that, you know, like 140 followers, yeah. which mainly my friends. And um, I, I don't have Facebook and I don't have any other social media. Um, so I, I really don't have any other comparison, but yeah. The, the world that I found on TikTok, um, you got thirteen thousand subscribers. There, there's that's some, nothing to sneeze. There's at. some fantastic skateboarders at, at the highest level. There's some absolute beginners of all ages. Don't sleep you know, on. Don't sleep on the fifty-five-year-old equivalent of you from the, the BMXers, the guys who were doing that shit in the eighties. They're getting their, they're getting their you know red lines back out, and they're doing their their freestyle bikes in those videos. It's yeah. it's like these guys are like. Some of them are pushing 57 and they're still perching those things up on the front wheel and doing the spin around all that. It, it's insane. It's phenomenal. It's so cool. And, and like I said, like there really is this like um, gravitational pull to a, having a positive attitude on that platform. I don't know what it is, but um, it, it's it's a snippet into how the world almost should be socially. Um and it's crazy and too. I, I just I really appreciate it. I appreciate everyone that follows me. I try to um, reply to every single message with something sincere and something unique, and and not just you know take it all for granted because um, you know it's just um, I, I don't know. It, it's just it makes me feel really really good that you know my little step by step process has influenced people that I'll probably never meet, um, but that it's creating some kind of chain reaction in their lives too. And, and, and furthering that on, um, shit, man. Like it's just, again, the beauty of, of, um, something that can be so dark, um, as is the internet and social media. Um, it's been nothing but positive in, in my experience for sure. And, 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 you know, the main reason we had you on other than to, to spend 90 minutes talking about skateboarding and snowboarding is the fact that even in your late thirties, early 40s mid 40s you can lose weight you can and it's a lifestyle change and that's the key you can't go on a diet you have to make the lifestyle change yeah absolutely and over the last six years mine's wavered a little bit but i'm still not at the i'm still wearing a size 34 right now so i'm not doing too bad some 36 if if i just wash my jeans but i'm not in the 38s (laughs) again yet and and i'm going to get off the soda but you know i think it's an I try to find people who have interesting stories that come on this podcast. As the as the title implies, you know, you failed to fail. Of all intents and purposes, if you would have asked any police officer, guidance counselor, anybody with a an outlook on life who knew you during your worst days, well, he's he's destined to be a, a fucking loser. But you failed to fail because you found success in your own way and on your own terms. And that's the type of stories I like to have on here because I find – People are motivated in their own different ways. Perfect example. I'm running all these miles. I'm running all these OCR events. Carrie, um, she's in the other room. She has lupus. She has fibromyalgia. She's always exhausted. And seeing me do this stuff did not motivate her any way, shape, and or form. Because after all, it didn't apply to her lifestyle because she has lupus and fibromyalgia. One day, she's at school, fourth grade teacher. She sees a a teacher she knows who has lupus walking down the street. Uh, hallway after hours with a Spartan race t-shirt on 
And she's like, wait a minute. That don't line up. She's like, what do you mean? She's like, you have lupus, yeah? How are you doing obstacle course races? How are you running? Because I'm a member of Facebook groups with people lupus, and we all talk about how none of us have energy, and we there's only so much we can do in the day. And just by seeing the teacher and discovering that a teacher that she worked with had lupus but still doing her stuff, that's what motivated her, not seeing me. And so then she started running with me. She ran her own 5K. She started losing weight. Sadly, she started fishing, and she really started making a name for herself in the fishing TikTok world. And sadly, back on June 21st, she had a slip and fall on some tile and blew out her knee and ankle. And I don't, and, sh- and we did an episode with her on here. You can go back and w- listen to it. But now, if the lupus and the fibromyalgia wasn't bad enough, now she's dealing with something called complex regional pain syndrome. And it occurs to people after strokes, heart attacks, and or surgery. And basically, it's another nerve condition that has no cure. It's the same medication she's already on for her lupus and fibromyalgia. But right now, on a good day, she only has 80 degree of movement in her knee. Can't get to full 140. Go to physical therapy, come home, she'll have 100 degrees, and two days later, it's back down to 80. Some days, she'll wake up in the morning and feel like someone's taking a sledgehammer to her knee. And so all the progress she made by being motivated through somebody else, now she's fighting a whole new battle. So now she has the fibromyalgia that kills your bone. I mean, fibromyalgia that exhaustion kills your bone, the lupus, which is an autoimmune disease, and now she's dealing with this complex regional pain syndrome. And, And so I know that people are motivated by different stories and different things. And so that's why I try to bring on people with different success stories. And I love the fact that you woke up and said, Hey, I'm, I'm not healthy. I feel like shit. My back hurts and damn it. I want to skate. And you did something about it regardless. And I love the fact that, you know, I joke around saying currency wise, at least here in the United States, 50 is the new 20. <laughs> Back in the day, you know, you can get a lot of things for 20 bucks. Now you can't get anywhere at 50. It's kind of the same with age. 45 is a new 20. We're doing, you know, when we were growing up, if you were 45 pushing 50, you were, you were waiting in line to do Cocoon Part 2. I mean, they were all considered, you know, oh, you're old. You're, you're getting ready to retire. You can't do anything. And here we are in our 40s, you know, skateboarding and running savage races. And, and a lot of people are out there doing it. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, eating right and uh, getting your heads out of your asses. And so congratulations on you for doing that and still doing all the things you can. And now you have the, the joys that most fathers can't do, which is to share that sport with their, their kids because you're still physically able to do it and you'll be around long enough to show them how to do it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, like I said, like, uh, you know, my, I've said this in a few of my videos, my, my son is is absolutely worth all the, um, you know, all the hard work it took to to get to this point, and uh, I'm worth all the hard work it took to get to this point. And my wife is, and um, my family, and and everybody that you know gets to I don't know enjoy the person that I should have been all these years, and I knew I I was inside. So, um, you know, if there's a it's so cliche if I can do it, anybody can do it. But honestly, um, one step forward at a time, you know, it's when my grandmother was my age, she looked like Mrs. Claus. Yeah. Like she's 96 now and she has looked at 96 since she was 40 years old. Um, we don't see the world that way moving forward. You know, we're, we're forever young if we want to be. Yep. And, uh, we, we do have the, uh, 
access to education and the access to um, athletics and the tools to get us moving forward if we want to educate ourselves and, and apply them, um, apply them to our lives. And, um, you know, if anybody wants to reach out to me on, on TikTok, I'm, I'm more than happy to, uh, to respond and engage and, um, and just listen as well. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's an, a helpful platform in that regard. And his TikTok profile is at punks, not dad. And before I let you go, if I say the name Todd Richards, what do you think? Forever young. Uh, again, that guy, um, fantastic skateboarder, obviously fantastic snowboarder, Olympic snowboarder. Um, I, I scurried off. Uh, our fantastic end- actor from out cold. And, uh, you know what? He looks like a million bucks. And if I could be 50 and look like him, I uh, will be in a good place. I scurried off during our interview because I kept, I was like, I know I have a book. I couldn't remember the title. And I was trying to look it up on Amazon. I finally saw it over there amongst all my World War II stuff. For those of y'all listening, if you want a glimpse into the world of snowboarding in the 90s, go out and pick up uh, P to the third power. It's P3, Pipes, Park, and Powder. It's the Todd Richards story. And he talks a lot about the Time Magazine article that talked about how skateboarders were nothing more than street thugs and they all carried guns and drugs. And he talked about a lot of that lifestyle that uh, Jared was talking about, the partying and the snowboarding and all that. And this is a very, very good read. And this will take you back to that whole scene back in the day of how, you know, the, the party lifestyle, how skateboarders and snowboarders were all treated. And it's a very good book. I strongly suggest it uh, if you guys want an interesting look. It's the Todd Richard stories, P3, Parks, Powder, and Pipes. But uh, for myself and Mr. Jarrett Fleming, appreciate you coming on. I know we went a little long, but I definitely appreciate it. And uh, for you guys, thank you so much. And as always, head over to failtofail.com or d-410.com. We'll have links to the video that we mentioned previously as well as links to Jarrett's uh, TikTok page, and we'll have him submit some photos so we can put up so you guys can uh, enjoy some throwback footage. Thank you so much, sir. Had a great time. All the best. Much appreciated. Hold tight. And uh, for the rest of you guys, thank you so much. And we will talk to you all very, very soon. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>